This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. We're looking at uh, questions people ask, and last week uh, several people said to me, that was really slick of you letting Jason handle that question about sex. (laughs) Well, yes, it was. But this is not a can of corn today, this question about suffering. If God is good, why do people suffer? Why is there suffering? There's all kinds of theological constructions and philosophies that people uh, create to answer that question. One of uh, a very prominent movement in our country uh, is kind of named the New Atheist. And there's a basic philosophy that says there is no God. There's just a sense of randomness that occurs in the universe, and there's a blind indifference to that suffering. And the sooner that you and I can just kind of reconcile ourselves to that, the better off we are. So that is a, a basic philosophical construction of how some people deal with the question of suffering. There's others who say uh, God is the author of all things. Everything happens according to script. Everything happens for a reason. So there's all kinds of different theological boxes and constructions we make to try to answer questions like this. And in some sense, we have to have some kind of framework, right, in dealing with life. And yet so often our, our boxes that we create aren't sufficient. They are for a while, but something happens to us or something happens to someone we love and somehow the answers aren't, aren't adequate anymore. Or we find it very limiting. Or we discover we put God in a box. Or because of our boxes, we're blinded to see truth that we otherwise will miss. So I suggest that, in some sense, we're better off by throwing away our theological, theological, systematic systems to questions that the Scriptures don't create a system for. And so in this message, I really want to talk about this in two different ways. I want to talk about this in the first part in... When we face suffering, or particularly when people come to us or we're there to try to help people, what not to do, what not to say. The book of Job, I think, is the classic example in the Bible of what not to do and what not to say. Job is in the middle of the Scripture. It's One of the five wisdom literature books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, that we have in the Old Testament. And just as Jesus told parables to deconstruct false theology, to change false narratives, I I think that we're on good ground to believe that Job is a parable. 
is a parable that is written to, to obliterate the false narrative that was very popular in Job's day, in the day of the Old Testament before Christ, and continued in the days of Jesus. And the false systematic theology was this, that bad things happen because you did something wrong, and good things happen because you did something right. Now, in one sense, there's truth in that, is there not? I mean, there is free will, right? And you do certain things, and there are certain consequences because you do certain things. But the problem was, they believed in this elaborate system where righteous people get good, wonderful things happen to them in life. If something happens to you then that's bad, you've brought this on. <coughs> you've done something to deserve this. What have you done? Consider the story of Job. You remember the story? Opens up by God saying to Satan, have you ever considered my man Job there? He's a good man. He's pure. He's righteous. There's not a better specimen in all the world of someone that's righteous before me. And Satan says, poof. Little wonder he's got everything going for him. He's got all this property. He's got all this wealth. He's got all this family. Well, just let me touch him. Let me take some of this away. We'll just see how righteous he is. And God says, well, okay, but don't touch him. You can't touch his person. So Satan sends all these storms and he sends all this destruction on the life of Job. And what happens? Well, they're taken away. The property's destroyed. His family's taken from him. His children, his grandchildren. Everything's left. And yet Job doesn't curse God to die and die. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't give up. He, he still holds his integrity. And then God says, look at Job. And Satan says, skin for skin. Just let me touch him. Let me add him. And I get at him, then we'll see if he's righteous. <coughs> so God says, okay. And now his health is destroyed. He's lost everything. He's in ashes. And all he's left with is a wife that nags him. I didn't make that up. I'm just telling... <laughs> Just being true to the story. She nags him and says, why don't you curse God, give up your integrity, and die? And Job is just kind of left there sitting in ashes. Everything's taken from him, his whole life, his health. And then his three friends pop up. And they come and they sit with Job and they see that his suffering is so great that they don't say anything for seven days and seven nights. It's only when they open their mouth that they get in trouble. And after seven days and seven nights, Job curses the day he was born, and his friends pipe up. Elavaz says, well, Job, you know, you've done something here to bring this on. What have you done? You've sinned in some way. And Beldad and Zophar, they also agree. And Beldad also surmises that, you know, your kids, they probably did something awful to bring this evil on themselves. And 
they, they died as a result of their own sin. And, and Zophar, uh, he surmises that, you know, Job, God's really being good to you. He probably ought to punish you more than, than he already is. For 35 chapters, this conversation carries on. And then God shows up. And God gives Job a whirlwind tour of the universe. But the funny thing is, God never answers the question, why? Never answers the question. Now, God does do something. He takes Job's friends to task, and he says to them, you three have misrepresented me with your answers. And he has Job serve as kind of like a priest in absolving them of their sin. Everything is restored, the story ends, but isn't it fascinating that in the story of Job, which I believe is a parable written to disintegrate this whole idea of our theological constructions, of our false easy answers that we give to the why question, in saying that's not the way to do it. Philip Yancey has been around for a long time. He wrote 35 years ago, he wrote this book, Where is God When It Hurts? And more recently, he's written the book, The Question That Never Goes Away, Why? And he talks recently in an interview about what church people do to people that are in the hospital. He's done lots of interviews of people that are suffering. And he, he says that there's documented evidence that church people really do a lot of damage as they visit people in the hospital because church people tend to say things like this these are things that i've created or constructed as well as yancey listed you're being tested have you done something to bring this on to yourself god is punishing you or the devil is attacking you. Or there's a reason for everything that happens. Or if you just have faith, you will be healed. You know, I, I really do believe in healing, and I do believe in asking for healing, and I do believe that God performs healing and miracles that we cannot explain. But I think there's really danger to the name it, claim it theology that would lay this heavy on a person that is dying. If you just have faith, you'll be healed. Or at a graveside, God needed another flower, so he took this little one. Or, aren't you a privileged saint to be suffering the way you are? Does that make you feel better? But the classic one for me that I hear so often, that is a horrific misquotation of Scripture, taken totally out of context. Well, he never puts on us more than we can bear. So what I would suggest to us this morning is that there's a lot of things not to do. There's a lot of things not to say. And we are tempted, and we want to give answers, and people come to us wanting answers, or we go to people that's wanting answers. And false answers 
are far worse than no answers at all. But when someone is ready to kind of move beyond the why question, and it's not that God doesn't mind us asking the why question. There's a better question. And when we're ready for it, we can ask the question, now that this has happened, now that this has occurred, how do we move on from here? What can I learn from this? Or what is the good that I can bring from this? Or what, what out of my own wounds or out of my own pain can I do to help somebody else out? Or, or what is it that God and I together can help see happen that brings good out of this tragedy or this event? Now that, that's, to me, <clears throat> the movement that God wants us to and calls us to because otherwise we get stuck. Some of us get stuck on the why question and we just stay there when there is no answer or we don't have an answer. And so the understanding uh, that Douglas Boyd writes, he's a professor and he's an author. He writes uh, about 10 years ago this book entitled Letters to a Skeptic. And the skeptic is actually his father and Boyd's the theological professor. And they're, it's an amazing book of compilation of letters of the skeptic and, and the response and the skeptic and the response. And what happens is that uh, the ultimate question is, why did God let your mother die? This good Christian woman, when we prayed till we were blue in the face, why did God let this happen? And Boyd answers it in this way. I too have asked God why. And I don't think God, that's, God is offended by us asking the question why. But I have come to believe that while I don't have an answer, I've received healing. And I've heard God speak to me out of the scripture that says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And as a young man who had lost his mother, I heard God say to me, I will be that mother to you. And so Boyd answers his father by saying, Christ is not the cause of our suffering, but he's the cure. Now there's some scripture that I, I want to, us to, to go to this morning. And it's the scripture found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And just as Job, to me, is a parable in the Old Testament on what not to do or what not to say, 2 Corinthians, to me, is the book that is filled with so much wisdom and affirmation in the face of suffering when Paul is not getting answers to the prayer the way that he wants. The book is full of all kinds of of wisdom and finding the affirmation we need when we're in the midst of suffering. Let's look at those scriptures together. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolations, 
who consoles us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. Nowhere in that scripture and nowhere in 2 Corinthians does it provide answers to suffering. But it points us consistently to a God of comfort. The presence of God, a God that comforts us, a comfort that we can know personally, and it's a comfort that you and I share together as we're hurting. The ultimate answer is the presence of God and the presence of compassion and love from one brother to one brother, from one sister to one sister. Now Paul goes on to write in verses 8 and 9, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We know that they were going through horrific suffering because they were Christians, because they were faithful, because of the persecution that people gave them. So Paul is saying, I want you to know about this. For we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Ever feel that way? You just don't feel like going on. So that we would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul is saying, you know, self-sufficiency has its place. Grace is not opposed to effort, but you know, there are things we come up against in life that we, we do not have the answer to, we cannot fix, we don't feel like carrying on, and unless God shows up and helps us, we're just not going to make it. You ever been there? I have been there several times. And what you discover is a strength within yourself. That is God. The same kind of strength and power that God uses to raise the dead is the strength that you are given in Christ. And so you begin to understand that I don't live with answers. But I know that God is able to redeem things. God is able to recycle pain. Two profound quotes, if you like quotes. Here's two good ones. Dallas Willard says, For those who love God, nothing irredeemable can happen to you. That's kind of a, another way of saying Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good. Not that God works all things, but God works all things together for good to those that love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. God doesn't author all things. God doesn't write the whole script in life. There is free will. We live in a fallen world. There are consequences to all this. But God is able to be the master of the brokenness of our life and to use it to help others for His glory. Philip Yancey says God isn't in the pain removal business as much as God is in the pain 
recycle business. Pain redeemed impresses me more than pain removed. In some ways, pain is, is helpful, isn't it? I'm not a fan of pain, but pain teaches a child not to touch a hot stove. Pain warns us about something that's destructive or harmful. Pain tells us there's something wrong in our body that we need to pay attention to. Emotional pain, spiritual pain, leads us to a sense of recognition that maybe there's something I need to look at here. What an affirmation to believe that God can recycle the worst that happens to us in some ways that's going to be helpful to others. And then just a few more verses of Scripture that Paul uses. For he who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue us. I love that affirmation. You know, he's helped us in the past. He is helping us. And he is going to continue to help us. On him we have set our hope that he will rescue us again. You get the idea that they're still going through the storm here. Paul's right in the middle of it, isn't he? But as you also join in helping us by your prayers, so that many will give thanks to our, on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now I said earlier about how sometimes our prayers aren't answered the way that we want, but it is, it is through prayer, friends, that we discover this power, this strength, this intimacy, this love of God through prayer. The other night, some of us were sitting around a fire, open fire, and there was an astute young man that just out of the blue put me on the spot. And he said, Pastor Bob, you said a few months ago, tell me and I'll forget. Show me and I'll understand. Involve me and I'll get it. But you don't ever show me in your sermons. You just tell me. Well, that was an astute question. <laughs> One of the reasons why we have prayer retreats is, is because everything we teach at the prayer retreat, we give a chance and an opportunity for implementation so that people actually practice it. It's not just in theory. But I do want to show you a way that we can pray and talk with God. One of the most basic understandings and ways that we can do this is simply to have an empty chair and to have a place to go every day. And to imagine that Jesus is sitting beside us in the empty chair. And we can talk to Jesus, our friend, about anything. And we can also listen and we can carry on conversation with him. There was an older man that was dying. He was dying of cancer. And he had beside his bed an empty chair. The priest came to visit. His daughter had called him. And his priest said, I guess you were expecting me. You have an empty chair. 
And the man said, no, that's not it. Not, that's not it at all, Father. And he said, please shut the door. So he shuts the door, the priest, and he says, well, tell me about it. And he says, well, you know, I've been going to church all my life. And I never really knew how to pray. I've listened to homilies on prayer, and they've just gone over my head. I've told priests that. I just don't get it. And one day I told the priest, can you help me out here? Can you teach me how to pray? And the priest handed me a book on contemplative prayer. And he said, just read this book and you'll be fine. I started reading that book. In three chapters, I had to look up 12 theological words. I just gave him back the book and said, thank you for nothing. But then I had a friend who said to me, Joe, it's just not that hard. It's like, imagine Jesus sitting with you in an empty chair and you're just talking with him and so I started doing that and I liked it and I began having conversations with Jesus all the time and sometimes he and I would be sitting with each other and there'd be an hour or two that would pass by so I have an empty chair by my bedside so I can talk with Jesus anytime. Two days later, the daughter called the priest up and said, my, my dad died. And the priest asked, well, did he die peacefully? And he said, well, yes, he did. In fact, a couple hours before he died, he called me in the room and he kissed me and he told me some corny joke and he sent me on his way and told me he loved me. And then I left and I came back and I found him, and he was gone. But the craziest thing, Father, because the priest had never told his daughter that he talked to an empty chair. He was afraid that she would send him away or something. He said, she said, Father, before he died, he got out of bed. And he went over, and he just simply leaned his head in the empty chair and that's how I found him friends that's not only the way to pray it's the way to live and it's the way to die